This is Ed Mazur, President Emeritus of the City Club of Chicago. Our speaker today was the veteran Congresswoman Robin Kelly, who was first elected to the United States Congress in 2013. Her district encompasses parts of the South Side and the suburbs. Her district actually runs from 43rd Street on the north out to Pontiac, Illinois, and parts of Kane County. She gave a very upbeat presentation to members of the City Club today. Her theme basically was that she was unbought and unbossed when she was the head of the Democratic Party of Illinois. She said there were many misrepresentations about her ability to raise funds and build the party in the state of Illinois. But she said, I have moved, along with others, the Democratic Party of Illinois into the future. She talked about what was going on in Washington, her role in advocating for Illinois families, farmers. She's a vice chair of the Energy Committee involved in health care and job creation for the state of Illinois. A former member of the Illinois House of Representatives, Congresswoman Kelly is a graduate of Bradley University and holds a Ph.D. from Northern Illinois University. She talked about the Safe Communities Act and the gun violence legislation, the first legislation passed by the U.S. Congress in the last 30 years. And she talked about the fact that there was actually 15 members of the Republican Party who supported that bill. She said we need to keep building a bipartisan atmosphere in Washington, although that has become more difficult since January 6th. She is an advocate of increased funding for community-based anti-violence programs, more protection for domestic violence victims. She said for the first time, Washington is beginning to seriously address climate change. And she talked about changes in the health care system, allowing Medicare to bargain directly with drug manufacturers on drug costs. She talked about the need to eliminate as many tax cheats as possible and get wealthy corporations to pay their fair share. Several times she indicated that the boss politics of the past have been rejected and that we are moving into the future. She finished up by saying she's very optimistic about the Democrats retaining control of the United States Senate and the House. And if that happens, what this could mean for the future. Congresswoman Kelly was dedic- has dedicated her career to public service as an, as an advocate for Illinois families. Since being elected in, to serve in the 2nd Congressional District in 2013, she has worked to expand economic opportunities, community wellness, and public safety across the state, championing numerous initiatives to generate job, wor- job growth, reduce health disparities, and end gun violence. Congresswoman Kelly is vice chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, the main policy writing body of the House, and serves on the health, energy, and consumer protection and and commerce subcommittees. Her energy and commerce work is focused on expanding access to health care, consumer protection for families, and economic development. Additionally, she is a member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform and serves on the National Security and Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Committee. You will recall one of the first pictures that we all saw of our beloved congressman, Congresswoman, was when she was kneeling with uh, the 
I have so many words for him, for John Lewis, um, kneeling. Do you, I don't know if you all recall that. It was such a moving, st- and for those of us who are from Illinois, we were like, but we know her. She's, you know, and it was so important that she made that statement, and that has carried her through to today. Um, prior to her election to Congress, Kelly was a member of the Illinois House of Representatives, served as, chief, served as chief administrative officer to Cook County, the second largest county in the United States, and was chief of staff to Illinois State Treasurer, then Alexi Janulius, becoming the first African-American woman to serve as chief of staff to an elected constitutional statewide office holder. The daughter of a small business owner and postal worker, Congresswoman Kelly moved to Illinois to attend Bradley University in Peoria, where she earned a BA in psychology and an MA in counseling. She later received her PhD in political science from Northern Illinois. She, ser- she lives in Matson with her husband, Dr. Nathaniel Horn, and has two adult children, Kelly and Ryan. Can we welcome Congresswoman, well- Congresswoman Kelly? Okay. Thank you, Miss Jackie. That was still sort of long, but uh, <laughs> good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. I was a virtual speaker last year, but I'm so glad to be here in person with you today. And I want to take a moment to thank to thank you to all my friends who are in the audience, supporters, donors, people who came here to see me that will probably talk about me and laugh at me later, but thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Um, what a year this year has been. Since this year started, since President Biden and Vice President Harris have been in office, we have made so much incredible progress in Washington. I know you don't want to hear me go over all the ins and outs of every single piece of legislation because there has been a lot, so I'm just going to stick to a few. First and foremost, let me say how relieved I am that we passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It's only been 30 years. It's only been 30 years since we passed any gun violence prevention legislation. A group I work with often had a memorial service yesterday for the 298 young people from 0 to 24 years of age that died between May 2021 and September 2022. This legislation was long, long overdue. It took way too long, and it does not include everything we want but it does include critically important measures that will impact the Chicago land and will help save lives. 15 Senate Republicans joined us in passing this legislation. I wish that weren't remarkable, but it is. Gun violence affects people across this country, regardless of where they live, what they look like, or how they vote. It has cost us too many lives to achieve the bipartisan support necessary to pass a sweeping gun violence prevention package like this one. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act includes some of my work to fight back against gun trafficking and straw purchasing. Gun trafficking, as many of you know, is a huge problem in Chicago. And for too long, some have overlooked the damage it is causing. After the Uvalde and Mel elementary school shooting, the governor of Texas, not someone I love, even pointed to Chicago as an example of why strict gun laws don't work. 
Governor Abbott is not the first person to try to point to Chicago as a reason to not pass gun violence prevention laws. Believe me, it is a deflection. It is not that our gun laws don't work. It's that the states around us don't even try to keep the illegal firearms from reaching our streets. Since I've been a member of Congress, it has gotten easier to buy a gun in Wisconsin and Indiana. We know that more than 60% of the crime guns in Chicago come from other states, primarily Indiana, Wisconsin, and Kentucky. That's why I've been working to establish gun trafficking as federal, as a federal offense. We can't rely on Republican state legislatures to do the right thing. And when guns are coming in across state lines, there isn't much Illinois lawmakers can do to protect our communities from that. It forces us to be reactive instead of proactive. Now, thanks to the act, we will be able to better prosecute offenders and keep those trafficked guns out of our communities. This bill also includes important funding that I've been advocating for. Soon there will be $250 million in funding available for evidence-based community violence intervention programs. We have so many programs here in the Chicago, in Chicago that should be eligible, and we're starting to see proof that these programs work. Just last month, the city of Chicago received national recognition from the Community Justice Action Fund, or CJAF for the progress we're making to address community violence. This summer, CJAF released an inaugural scorecard report highlighting the cities that are making the most progress in community violence intervention. Chicago tied with Oakland for the number three spot on the scorecard. When we reflect on the work that is left to be done around gun violence, it is important that we also reflect on the progress we are making. Progress inspires hope and hope inspires action. I am also excited that this bill provides for the increased mental health services. The new law supports national expansion of community behavioral health center models, improves access to mental health services for children, youth, and families through Medicaid and CHIP, increases services for youth and families in crisis through telehealth, and will expand provider training in mental health, suicide prevention, and crisis and trauma intervention and recovery. We're investing in both getting people the help they need and keeping weapons out of the hands of those who should not have them. The new law creates $750 million for states to administer red flag laws or crisis intervention orders. In response to the shocking amount of gun violence committed by youth, we will require more thorough background checks for buyers under 21. I did not realize myself that you couldn't buy a handgun until you were 21, but you can buy an assault weapon at 18. The new law also allows for review of juvenile and mental health records for those buyers and will help prevent youth who should not have access to firearms from buying guns. We tried to raise the age, but we just could not get it passed in, in the Senate, where I say many bills go to die. I'm so glad that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act will finally address the boyfriend loophole by adding convicted domestic violence abusers and dating relationships to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. Previously, this was exclusive to married partners or ex-spouses. Beyond combating gun violence, we're also passed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. 
This landmark legislation represents the largest investment in the fight against climate change we have ever made. $370 billion to be exact. Historic measures to negotiate prescription drug costs and cap the costs of insulin and lower energy costs, all while ensuring that corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share. For the first time ever, we are now empowering Medicare, Medicare to negotiate prices for the highest drug costs in Medicare. We've been trying to enact this policy for years, <clears throat> excuse me, and now we've finally done it. This, <laughs> this, this provision alone will save us more than $100 billion over the next 10 years. Plus, we're going to ensure seniors can afford the drugs they need to stay healthy. While we're also capping their Part D drug costs at 2000 a year, which will kick in next year, and capping the cost of insulin at $35 a month for seniors and those with disability on Medicare. If you know someone who relies on insulin, you know what a burden the cost of that life-saving drug can be. While we're lowering costs for Americans, no middle-class person or family is going to see their taxes raised a dime for this legislation. Instead, we're going after wealthy tax cheats and finally making corporations pay their fair share. <clears throat> While I'm proud of this legislation, negotiating what eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act was incredibly difficult and frustrating. As many good policies we included in this package, there were so many more that I fought for that we should have passed, including 12 full months of Medicaid postpartum coverage and closing the Medicaid coverage gap. It was important for us to deliver on promises we've made to the American people, and I'm glad that we did. And we'll keep working to find a path for some of those critical policies that were not included. All the progress we made this year was building on our successes of last year. We passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which will help Illinois by repairing and rebuilding our roads and bridges, improving healthy, sustainable transportation options, delivering clean drinking water to every American household and school, helping connect everyone to reliable high-speed internet, improving our airports, and preparing our infrastructure for the impacts of climate change and cybersecurity. And the state of Illinois should be receiving, they haven't gotten it all yet, but $18 billion. We passed the American Rescue Plan to reopen our schools and businesses and get vaccines into arms to save lives. We gave money to the state every city or town, no matter how large or small, and every county. We also brought back earmarks, even though they don't like us to use that term. Uh, they like us to say community project funds <laughs> to help support projects and organizations within our districts. Last year, Congress funded all 10 of my requests, totaling nearly $7 million brought back right to my district. Some of those projects included $1.5 for the CTA Red Line Extension Project, $3 million for broadband in Pembroke, $500,000 for enrichment programs at Chicago Public Schools, and $625,000 for Franciscan Public Health's telemedicine behavioral health programs. This year, we're going to fund 15 projects uh, across the district, so really, really proud of that. Tomorrow, we return after... 
as they like to say, we're on recess, we're on vacation. I haven't had that yet in my six weeks I've been home. But we return back tomorrow and we'll be funding the government. And the president has also, which we'll be discussing, asked for more money for Ukraine, for uh, monkeypox and for covid uh, and we're hoping uh, we've passed it in the House already, uh, abortion protection and the Defense of Marriage Act. But again, um, we're waiting for the Senate, of course. I want to talk a little bit about my staff, which a couple are in the audience, Tony Presta and Rick Bryant. This year alone, my staff has closed 525 cases. That's 525 people who have been helped getting their IRS tax refunds, their veterans benefits, tracking down missing Social Security checks, and getting their passports in time for trips. I don't know how many calls we had after COVID that people didn't realize their passports had expired. And uh, I, I have a beast of a staff, and one person just told me that we got them their passport in one day. How we did that? I do not know. <laughs> and I'm not asking. <laughs> in total, we brought back just shy of $1 million to constituents this year in the form of missing benefits checks, tax refunds, and more. These are crucial payments that my constituents have earned and rely on. And delivering these benefits for them is one of my greatest joys of serving in Congress. But our democracy is not just based on our service to the people. The people have delivered for us also. Beyond policy, we've witnessed some of the most promising cultural progress in many years. Most remarkably, we confirmed Katanji Brown Jackson as the first black female Supreme Court justice. <laughs> Millions of black girls who grow up seeing themselves represented in the highest court in the land. I hope that Justice Jackson's confirmation will pave the way for so many others. We need women, and specifically black women involved in the justice system, right, Judge Holmes? This year, we saw the detrimental decisions the court is capable of. In the elections we have seen since the Dobbs decision, it is clear that the thoughts and desires of most Americans are not represented on the bench. So I say thank God for Kansas and thank God for upstate New York who voted in the Democrat. That was quite a surprise. <laughs> Continuing to push for progress is difficult, and I know. Last year, I was elected as the first black chair and first female chair of the Democratic Party of Illinois. My goal was to remake the party from the bottom up to elect Democrats while striving for inclusion, innovation, and a new future for Illinois. This is going to be a new era for Illinois politics, and it came on the heels of a brand of politics that is as corrupt as its cliché. Every period of progress in American history has been met with reactionary pushback. When those who have historically been in power are threatened, they react with desperate attempts to maintain that power and influence. When desperate people are threatened, they will go to extraordinary means to protect the power they have enjoyed and to uphold the systems that have allowed them to remain in charge. In 2018, we saw a wave of women, first-time politicians, and a diverse group of people from underrepresented walks of life elected to Congress but also to state and local positions. These wins brought an exciting and promising hope for the future. In the 2020 elections, we saw black voters increase by 14%. 
that's encouraging, but we have to keep working to ensure that everyone can access their voting rights. Still, even a 14% increase is clearly a threat to some people and some groups. This year, we know that we may see a reaction to that progress. There are frightening people running across the country, bigots, racists, and people who want to go back to the old way. Even here in Illinois, we will lose a couple of reasonable folks on the other side of the aisle to candidates who are more concerned with dog whistles and retweets than with upholding democracy. As chair, I work to push back against that old way. After many years of our party being controlled by one person, I sought to move us to a decentralized system, to bring in new voices, new ideas, and to include people who had not been given a seat at the table before. My goal was to build on the momentum that we've seen across this country since 2016 to include the new, passionate people working to improve our democracy in the direction of our party and to make our party pay attention and work for people who have been ignored. Under my leadership, the Democratic Party of Illinois was brought into the 21st century. We added over 100,000 emails to be able to communicate with as many people as possible. We developed a system for small dollar donors. We improved communication with county parties and built a coordinated campaign to ensure that all levels of government had support. I also represented the party going to national meetings and pitching Chicago as a host for the DNC convention and for Illinois to be an early primary state. Interacting with the DNC and other state chairs, I learned that except for a few from Illinois, we had not been at the table in decades when the meetings occurred. They were all thrilled that Illinois had returned to the table and was an active participant promoting the party and not just one person's agenda. In fact, as a relatively new person to the DNC, I was elected to the executive board, which I still remain. I thought we had turned the corner and that we would become that new party. The boss politics of the past have been rejected for a new path, but as we all know, change is hard. I was proud of what was accomplished, but it apparently wasn't enough. When you have forces undercutting your position for 16 months and willing to spend almost half a million dollars against people who supported you, it is not easy. When there are people sniping at your every move and word, willing to bully and coerce those who don't fall in line, it is difficult both personally and professionally. I endured months of articles that sought to perpetuate false narratives or, or attack my integrity. Gross misrepresentations were made about the party's ability to fundraise under my leadership. I was able to bring in federal donors who had not even thought about giving to DPI under the previous chair. I had Nancy Pelosi helping. Whip Clyburn came in. Hakeem Jeffries, the chair of the Democratic Caucus, uh, came in to help us. Even the Congressional Black Caucus, they were so proud of me, they donated to the Democratic Party of Illinois. And our blue committee raised over a million dollars. And I want to thank my, who was my vice chair, Mike Carbonaggi, for all of your help and your support. <laughs> Through it all, I tried to stay above it. My staff at DPI worked so hard to help bring the party into the future, and I will be forever grateful to them. I always sought to do what was best in the interest of the party. 
I will leave it to those on the state central committee to tell their own stories. But there were some members who wanted to vote for me, intended to vote for me, whose votes would have put me over the top, but they were pressured to go the other way. They know who they are. The folks who pressured them know what they did. But borrowing a line from the legendary Abner Mikva, I was the nobody nobody sent. I have been and always will be a team player. In the redistricting process, I accepted a much larger district with new rural areas. Right now, my district is 53rd Street, and I have all of Kankakee County. I was moved further north. Where's LG Sims? I know he's in this room. To uh, 43rd Street, out west of Pontiac, and uh, south of Danville. So my district will be two and a half times bigger than it is geographically. I have 1,200 farms in my district now, and I will have over 2,000 farms. So I laugh at myself. The Manhattan, New York girl has over 2,000 farms. Uh, and But I have a fantastic relationship with my farmers. In fact, they just gave me an award. So... Uh, my new district will be more challenging, but I see this as an opportunity to reach a new group of people, and I'm happy to do so to bring downstate Illinoisans new representation and to show up the map for others who needed more Democratic cushion. Pundits say we will not hold the House, but I will tell you that we, uh, the House members, We've always been confident that we were going to hold the House. So um, now the pundits are starting to come around to us. But we know we have to work hard. We know we have to be proud Democrats. We know we have to talk about what we have accomplished. And those of us that can, we will be traveling all over the nation to make sure that as many of our colleagues win in the House. And I know I'll be going to Florida because I have to see my girl Val Demings become the senator. I would just let you know I will not give up on trying to pass more gun violence prevention legislation to eliminate health disparities, to improve mental health outcomes, to generate economic development that benefits everyone, and to make our political system and government work for everyone. While others may seek to lead with threats, financial in intimidation, and bullying, I lead by doing. I lead with grit, grace, and conviction, and I have no puppet master. I am still the Robin Kelly... I'm still the Robin Kelly I always was. I just keep my boxing gloves in my purse now. <laughs> Throughout the past 16 months, I found myself reflecting upon the legacy of one of my sheroes, the trailblazing Shirley Chisholm. And like Shirley Chisholm, I remain unbought and unbossed. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, are you bringing questions to me? Okay. I'm going to give Congresswoman a minute to, uh oh. I'm going to give, okay, so she's already taken her. Well, I will tell you, Congresswoman, you are not a nobody here. You are definitely a somebody. And I just want to thank uh, the Congresswoman for doing something that sometimes we forget to do, and that is acknowledging her staff. Um, I'm partial to Tony, but you know, they do such a great job and I, I, sometimes that gets lost in the sauce. 
And the work doesn't get done without the staff, right? That's right. <laughs> so thank you for taking time to acknowledge them. Um, I'm going to get right into the questions. We have a few. Are you bringing me more? Yes, God. Okay. It's not a lot of questions. So how about we start with, I think you've actually already answered this question from our illustrious uh, Chair Emeritus, Dr. Ed Mazur. He says, um, in light of the recent events, um, abortion, inflation, declining gas prices, et cetera, will the Dems continue, what will the Dems do to remain, to retain control of the U.S. House and the Senate? You've already answered that, but I'll let you elaborate a little bit. As I said, we feel like so many good things have happened, especially as of late, and um, and good things happened last year also. So we are traveling the country to talk about those good things, um, and we're helping our colleagues that may need more help. But, you know, we're holding our chin up. We're not, as I say, letting the crown fall because we know that we've done a lot of good things. We just have to let the people know it. And also the other thing is, it's not about, uh, we're talking about what we're doing, but I'm going to tell you, if we don't win and some of those people take over, Margaret Taylor Greene, Mary Miller, that embarrassingly we sent from Illinois, Bobart, Jim Jordan, it is scary, folks. The, you know, uh, that's all I can tell you. It is scary, the things that they really want to pass and the things they want to do. So... We can't let that happen. <laughs> Murtis Brown, are you here? Good. Because when people send in questions and they're not here, sometimes I don't ask the question. <laughs> Just sometimes. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, her question is, what more do you think Congress can do to support people living with Alzheimer's or other dementia and eventually help find a cure? You know, that's kind of near and dear to me, too. So. Yeah. Thanks to Rosa DeLora. She's the head of appropriations. So there will be a lot more money coming in. I talked a lot about mental health, but just a lot more money coming in for health and health disparities. My colleague Barbara Lee was here and, uh, uh, she is a giant in the healthcare arena. And actually I'm the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust. So we're, you know, we're trying to bring all the information forth and trying to increase allocate um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Allocations, Allocations uh, to um, uh, to that, um, but also just and also trying to um, fund research and studies. You know, uh, also because that's how we research and data that informs uh, uh, programs, legislation, and the money. Mark Weimuller. Mark, are you a member? Where are you? I'm not sure. Well, I don't know because you didn't check the box. And I'm like, you know, Dr. Mazur's taught me that, you know, if you're not a member, I don't know. <laughs> but because we like to be equal opportunity people here at the City Club, I'm going to ask your question today. Mark is a good friend of the City Club, you all. So don't go quote me and say something crazy. Um, would you support the federal bailout for the Illinois pension system? Mm-hmm. Would I support a federal bailout for the Illinois pension systems. Um, the problem with that is there's, we have 50 states, we have territories um, that we're responsible for. And uh, if we start doing that for one state, then uh, we'll have to do it for others. Hopefully the money that we've been sending into Illinois through the American Rescue Plan and other things has saved Illinois money in other ways. So um, um, I don't know if LG Sims feels different about that, but um, just blanketly, no, I wouldn't support it. 
Harry Wilkins, are you here? Yes. Great. Harry is from the Gift of Hope Organ and Tissue Donor Network. What additional support is in the works to support access to primary care and outpatient mental health in the underserved communities and the south and the west sides of Chicago? You can't hear me? Can you hear me now? Okay, I'll repeat the question. What additional, this question is from Harry Wilkins, who's from the Gift and Organ and Tissue Donor Network. What additional support is in the works to support access to primary care and outpatient mental health in the underserved communities of the south and west sides of Chicago? I talked about that a little bit uh, in my speech. I didn't name all the money, but there is a lot of money that has been set aside um, this year federally for mental health programs. Now we send the money. Um, we, we not, we can't always say where the money goes. Now the money that comes through grants, like in my district, I, I give, um, uh, informationals about what groups can apply for what. So hopefully people will take me up on that and they will apply for the programs. There's no, you know, guarantees, but, uh, uh, but there is a lot of money in the hopper to deal with, um, um, mental health, but it, you know, once we send it is what the receiver decides to do with it. And, you know, some goes to the county, some goes to the city. Thank you. You can applaud that if you <laughs> I just feel like as a downstater, um, it's there, those folks that are getting you are getting a blessing because, you know, they haven't had the kind of, and we farmers, you know, we're good people. Downstate. Yeah, but I you know, we farmers, we're good people, you know. <laughs> I think we're good people. Um, right, Stella, from way, way, way down southern Illinois. Um, this question is from Haddison Wood, Woodward. Is that right? Did I say that correctly? Yes. Thank you. I'm so glad I did. Oh, Addison. Oh, okay. So this question is, for the first time in nearly two decades, the Social Security Fairness Act, which repeals the Social Security offsets, has strong bipartisan support and has a chance to pass if called for a vote. What are the roadblocks to passage of this bill? John Larson, from my colleague from Connecticut, has done a great job on working on Social Security. You know, really, uh, our barriers have been... Uh, we can pass it in the House. It's just getting bills passed in the Senate. So if you have friends that live in other states, because usually um, our senators vote, you know, like the majority in the House, it's contacting those other people and putting the pressure on. But it does help that it's bipartisan. Um, I don't know what the numbers are in a bipartisan way, but the more bipartisan it is, that's what helps. This is why she gets stuff done in Washington, because she just gets those questions, doesn't she? <laughs> um, <laughs> Amanda or MB or somebody, can you bring me the, the goods? Um, so from gun violence to all of the other work that Congresswoman is doing, it is so important that we continue to keep our finger to the pulse on both sides of the aisle. Because there is work to be done, and um, I just appreciate from the. Yes, you can. 
I usually say this. I do work in a very bipartisan way. In fact, I just came back from my colleague, Bob Latta. He represents Ohio, Republican. Um, he, I went and spent the day with him in his district and talked to his supporters, and he's going to do the same thing and come to uh, Illinois and spend the day in my district. And there's a number of my colleagues that have done this exchange. Um, I always say we do believe it or not, work together more than people think we do is just what you may read or you see the, uh, you don't see the good, you mostly see the bad and the ugly. And there is some ugly, but, um, but, um, but I know, and I'm not the only one, we do try to work. We try in a bipartisan manner. January 6th put a little hurting on that. And, uh, but, uh, and I was one of the people on my hands and knees. So it put a little hurting on that, but, uh, but we still are trying to do the right thing.